0: Hi, I'm Rick Ryman, host of Audibly Speaking, a show on the stories behind the stories of our time. By sounding out on these stories, we give voice to them and hear them for the first time. From the news of the day to history and literature, from audiobooks to leaders on the stump, we examine the backstories of our time, audibly speaking. This is my fourth and final recording of Lee Harvey Oswald in the months and days leading up to and following the assassination of JFK. Now, the whole purpose of this series is to show that there really is no mystery about the assassination, that Oswald was at the heart of the event, and that those who argue otherwise try to pretend that. Oswald really never existed or had nothing to do with the JFK assassination because so many things about Oswald cannot be explained except as evidence that one man acting alone killed the president. So those who engage or trade in conspiracy theorizing have to conveniently ignore Oswald and some conspiracy books, incredibly enough, say nothing at all about Oswald. Of course that turns all we know about the assassination on its head. So let's continue by talking about the hours immediately before and after the assassination and how the evidence is so damning that Oswald did it and that he acted alone. There is no evidence that Oswald made telephone calls in the days and weeks before the assassination with co-confederates, which presumably would have been necessary, we know that Oswald took a trip with Buell Fraser, one of his co-employees at the Texas School Book Depository, on thursday november twenty first to retrieve his rifle. Oswald told Fraser that he needed to go out to Irving to collect curtain rods for his rooming house. His rooming house already had curtain rods, so that was a barefaced lie. But Frazier believed him and carried him out to Irving. He was not expected at the Ruth Payne home, and undoubtedly Ruth Payne was not pleased to see him, but everyone acted in a civil manner, and when Oswald arrived there, Ruth said, Oh, our president is coming tomorrow probably because she knew that Oswald was interested in politics. Oswald just mumbled something and said, oh, oh, yes. But at dinner, the subject never came up, and Oswald never wanted to talk about it, for obvious reasons. Now, the next morning, he went out to the Texas School Book Depository with Buell Fraser. Frazier saw the package in the back seat, asked what it contained, And Oswald said, Don't you remember? Those are my curtain rods. And Fraser just accepted that as an explanation and the conversation drifted to other subjects. Oswald then got out of the car when they reached the depository and walked at least 30 feet in front of Fraser, which was quite out of character when they arrived at the depository together. They usually walked beside each other and made small chit-chat, but this time Oswald did not wait for Fraser to stop the car. He picked up his package and walked hurriedly into the building. Fraser could not get a good look at what the package looked like, or potentially what the size of the package was, and that became a matter of some controversy later. But at the very least, Oswald's behavior here was quite suspicious. Also suspicious is the fact that Oswald filled no orders for books, which was his job, that morning. He carried his clipboard around, but he managed to spend four hours without filling any orders. At one point, one of his co-workers glanced at Oswald's clipboard and pointed out that the form was not filled out properly, and Oswald said, oh oh yes, I'll fill that form out better. On another occasion, Oswald was seen looking out the window at the people gathering in Dealey Plaza, and he turned to the employee who, was, who asked him about the clipboard, and he said, why are all those people congregated out there? And Garmin said, oh, that's because the president is going to ride by around noon. And Oswald said, oh, well, what is his route? And Givens pointed out that he would probably be driving down Main, turning onto Houston, and then making a left turn onto Elm, which was directly outside the windows of the Texas School Book Depository. Oswald acted surprised. Now, in my interpretation of this, Oswald was looking at the crowd because, of course, this was what was on his mind. And Oswald did not want to appear to be too focused on events outside the building rather than his job. So Oswald invented the story that he didn't know what was going on outside the building so that he could make Givens feel that Oswald was genuinely curious about what was happening outside. Because most employees knew about the route, most employees knew about the presidential visit, and they wouldn't have been staring intently out the window, since they knew they would be excused to watch the motorcade at noon. Oswald seems to have been trying to cover his tracks here. Of course, that's pure speculation, but it is an interesting moment, because most of the morning, nobody really saw Oswald, and when his clipboard was finally discovered, quite a few days after the assassination squeezed between some boxes as if to have been hidden by Oswald for no reason unless he was somehow involved in the assassination. Oswald had no explanation for his behavior that morning. For instance, why was this most political of men not interested in watching the motorcade? If one posits the possibility that Oswald is innocent, this is the type of question that needs to be asked. He didn't watch the motorcade with any other members of the book depository staff. He was the only person who had no alibi for where he was at twelve thirty. He said he was having lunch in the lunchroom with Junior Garmin, but Garmin was on the fifth floor with Bonnie Ray Williams and Harold Norman, and so Garmin, of course, denied having lunch with Oswald. So this makes no sense. And why did Oswald leave the building within three minutes of the assassination if he had no involvement in it? Again, he was the most politically interested person at the book depository, and yet, even though the President of the United States had been shot right outside his building, he had no interest in sticking around to see what was happening. So Oswald then leaves the building and goes east on Elm Street to try to pick up a bus that would then go past the Book Depository building and head back to Oak Cliff. Some people have said, well, if Oswald was guilty, why would he get on a bus that would travel back towards the Book Depository building and indeed past the Book Depository building on its way to Oak Cliff? That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But the reality was that the only bus that would go to Oak Cliff had to pass the Book Depository building. And this is how Oswald had escaped in the Walker assassination. So it was the only way he knew of how to escape. And perhaps he thought that Lady Luck would smile kindly upon him twice. But of course the traffic jams set off by Oswald's own assassination meant that the bus got stuck in traffic Oswald then picked up a transfer, got off the bus, and walked a few blocks to the Greyhound station where he picked up a cab to take him to Oak Cliff. Now the question arises at this point, why did he get a transfer? What was the purpose of the transfer? Well, in my opinion, the transfer was another form of alibi. You remember that after he was stopped by Marion Baker, just seconds after the assassination on the second floor, Oswald proceeded to buy a Coke. And he had that Coke in his hand when he passed Mrs. J.A. Reed on the second floor on his way to the front door of the book depository. The Coke was a form of alibi, it was supposed to show Mrs. Reed and anybody else he encountered that he was not shooting the president, but was drinking a Coke at the time of the assassination which had happened only a few seconds earlier. Well, he got rid of the coke soon after he left the depository building. Once he was on the bus, a transfer would be a useful way to demonstrate to anyone who stopped him that he was supposedly riding a bus at the time of the assassination. That is my speculative judgment as to why he wanted a transfer. But the Warren Commission believed that Oswald intended later to take a bus to a different Greyhound station, some distance from downtown Dallas, where he could board a bus to Mexico. And of course, that is possible. But Oswald did have money on him, and he could have afforded bus fare on his own. So it's not clear to me that he needed a transfer to join that second bus. Uh, It would save him a few cents, of course and Oswald was something of a penny pincher. So Oswald, of course, goes to his rooming house, he picks up a gun, and he leaves it. Now that's suspicious too. Why does he need a gun if he's totally innocent? Why does he need to leave his rooming house at all? He's seen across the street waiting for a bus, but only for a few seconds, and then he starts walking towards 10th Street, a few blocks away, where he is stopped by patrolman officer J.D. Tippett. And at that point, Tippett is suspicious of Oswald, who matches the description of him put out by Howard Brennan and put out over the police radio. And so Tippett gets out of his car. He's somewhat suspicious of Oswald, but he's not terribly suspicious because he doesn't take his gun out of his holster and as he's crossing the left front side of the car, Oswald whips out his pistol and fires three shots into Tippett. Oswald then goes behind the police car, around to the left side, and then to the front behind the fatally wounded Tippett and fires a bullet into his head to finish him off. There are multiple witnesses to this who see Oswald killing Tippett and multiple members of this group of people identify Oswald later in a police lineup. Howard Brennan is also asked to identify Oswald. He says he can't do so at the time, but later Brennan said he recognized Oswald, but he didn't want to admit to recognizing Oswald because he believed that Oswald might be part of some conspiracy and he was worried for his own life at the time. So Brennan, in effect, lied and said he could not identify Oswald in the police lineup of November 22nd and later admitted that he had lied and that, indeed, he did recognize Oswald. So all of this evidence makes it very hard to argue that Oswald was innocent of the assassination. And the evidence from there piles up amazingly. For instance, when Oswald was arrested in the Texas theater, he tried to shoot another officer and he said at the time, well, it's all over now, just before he whipped out his pistol to try to shoot that officer. The gun pin jammed and he was unable to get a shot off, but it appears that Oswald was deliberately trying to engage in suicide by cop at that point, because there were dozens of cops in the theater by that time, and if Oswald had shot and hit another officer, there is little doubt that a hail of gunfire would uh, have been the response towards Oswald himself. So the question there becomes, what drove Oswald to essentially try to commit suicide When the theory being, if you want to play devil's advocate, Oswald is completely innocent. It just doesn't make any sense. And the phrase, well, it's all over now, is highly portentous. And it's very significant that this report was immediately related on November 22nd, and it was part of the Warren Commission investigation, It's not something that was remembered years later. It's something that was identified immediately at the time. And so, although people forget that Oswald said this in the heat of the moment, when perhaps he believed his life was at an end and secrecy was no longer needed, it's quite significant. Now, of course, Oswald was actually arrested at the theater, and he was walked out to the police car, And at that point, his defense mechanisms reasserted themselves, and he decided to lie like he always lied and claimed that he was innocent of everything. He was innocent of shooting Tippett, even though there were many witnesses who identified him as such, and he was innocent of the Kennedy killing. Now, here we have a situation where... Oswald was caught dead to rights, shooting Tippett dead, and yet he denied it. There was at this point less evidence that he had shot at Kennedy, but he denied that too. How convincing are his denials of the Kennedy shooting when he made the same denials of the Tippett shooting in the face of all that we know based on the witness testimony of more than five witnesses who saw him do it and later testified to the same. How convincing is his profession of innocence involving JFK? So Oswald was then brought down to the police station. And here we have this bizarre situation where Detective Will Fritz was just coming back from the Texas School Book Depository. And at the Texas School Book Depository, Roy Truly had told Fritz that Oswald was the only member of the Texas School Book Depository staff who was not still in the building. And Fritz told his police officers to go out to Irving, the address that Roy Truly had for Oswald, and pick up Oswald and bring him to the police station. When Fritz got back to the police station, he told an officer there, I want to talk to this man, Oswald. He's in Irving. We need to get him back here. And the police officer said, I'll save you a trip, Detective Fritz. There is your man in that room. There he sits already. Of course, Oswald was not brought down from Irving, but he was captured at the Texas Theater after being seen killing Officer Tippett. But it was the same man that Fritz wanted to see for reasons connected to the Texas School Book Depository, not the Tippett shooting. Now, that also is very, very compelling evidence that Oswald was mixed up in the JFK assassination and not just the Tippett killing. Now, over the next 48 hours, there were these interrogations between Captain Fritz and other members of the Dallas Police and the Secret Service, and even FBI agent James Hostey, whom Oswald hated. But there was one provable lie after another that Oswald told, another incriminating set of facts that make Oswald obviously guilty. Oswald, for example, lied when he said that he had lunch with Junior Garman, he lied when he said that he he had no explanation for the ID that was on his person in the name of Alec Heidel with his own photograph on it. In cases like this, whenever he had no explanation, he simply refused to talk about it. In other cases, he just lied. For example, on Saturday it was brought to his attention that he had a photograph taken sometime earlier in 1963 with the rifle in one hand and the pistol on his belt, the same pistol that shot Officer Tippett and the same rifle that shot JFK. Oswald said that that was not him in the picture. He said that the picture had been superimposed with someone else's face on his body. And conspiracy theorists always think that Oswald is telling the truth and everything that he said, and that's very convenient for them. But the photograph has been examined in great detail by photography experts over the years. And the one thing that really goes against Oswald's explanations in so many cases is the fact that these allegations have been investigated ten times over, at least, and it has been ascertained that the photographs were original. They were taken by Marina Oswald. She admitted to taking them. The photographs were signed on the back, in some cases, by Oswald himself, who gave one picture to George de So it's very hard to deny the authenticity of pictures that are signed by the suspect himself, handwriting experts agreed that Oswald's handwriting was the handwriting on the back of the photograph sent to George de Also, Oswald lied about where he was at the time of the assassination, and he even contradicted himself. At first he said he was in the lunchroom, which was convenient because that's where he was spotted by Officer Baker some 75 seconds after the assassination. But Oswald was not eating lunch when Baker spotted him. Oswald was walking in the direction of the eastern side of the Texas School Book Depository building, and Baker just happened to spot him through the lunchroom door before Oswald ran out of sight. However, Oswald had no food with him, he had no sign of having eaten a lunch. He was not with anyone because everybody was outside watching the motorcade. And Oswald had no explanation for how he was having lunch at the time or with whom. Of course, Oswald bought the Coke after Baker and Roy Truly rushed up to the sixth floor and higher floors. But that was an alibi so that he could get through the Texas School Book Depository Building which perhaps was an alibi that he had decided upon and decided to use when he was actually under interrogation later. But again, the contradiction in this story is that Oswald's very last interrogation on Sunday morning, November 24th, included a statement by Oswald, that following the assassination, Oswald had come down from the sixth floor, which is, of course, what we think he did do after the shooting, and then he was on the second floor. Well, that contradicts his statement that he was having lunch the whole time on the second floor, and it places him on the sixth floor at the time of the assassination, where the shots were fired. This has been forgotten because it since Oswald never had a trial. It most certainly would have been used, and it should be used by historians to make it clear that this was one more lie that Oswald told, that is, the lunchroom lie, because indeed we have plenty of evidence that Oswald, after firing the shots, did indeed walk down to the second floor, as he admitted to doing, on Sunday morning, November 24th. The bullets that were fired from the sixth floor window were accompanied by three shells that were matched to Oswald's rifle to the exclusion of all others. The empty shells found on 10th Street that two sisters saw Oswald dispose of from his pistol were traced to that pistol to the exclusion of all other pistols, that is, to Oswald's pistol. So in addition to eyewitnesses who saw him shoot Tippett dead, you have the fact that the shells in both cases were linked to both murder weapons, the rifle that killed JFK and the pistol that killed Tippett. Oswald was obviously in flight, which is a clear sign of consciousness, of guilt. Now, in addition to that, there were other statements that Oswald made in the interrogation that either made no sense or implicated him. Oswald was asked why he carried a pistol into the Texas theater if he was not guilty of the shooting of Tippett. And he said, Well, you know, young men just like to carry pistols everywhere. That was hardly convincing. Oswald also denied telling Buell Fraser that he had a paper bag full of curtain rods. He even denied carrying a paper bag, and he basically suggested that Buell Fraser was lying or deluded when he said that he saw Oswald carrying a paper bag full of something which Oswald called curtain rods. Obviously, the curtain rods were damning evidence against Oswald, and Oswald had no explanation for them, so he simply denied that they happened. This is another example similar to the photographs where he made up some outlandish story to try to paper over the obviously incriminating evidence at hand. The paper bag, the curtain rod story, the picture of him with both weapons in an aggressive stance could only be parried by either not talking about them, or completely denying them, or by making up a story about fabrication, which was disproved time and time again by photography experts over the years, but even immediately. Another indicator of Oswald's guilt was the fact that he did not scream and cry out for his rights, while he was under interrogation or incarceration. If Oswald had been innocent of the crime, he would have raised and cried bloody murder. He would have demanded to be released immediately. He would have been screaming for his rights. He would have told Marina to get the best lawyer possible, and to get him out of jail. He would have cried out for his innocence but when he met with Marina on Saturday, she said she could tell that he was guilty by looking at his eyes. She was the one who knew that Oswald was capable of murder. She knew about the Walker shooting, he knew she knew, and he could not lie to her except by remaining silent. He neither admitted, nor denied that he killed the President. But one thing that was unusual about Oswald, or unusual if he was innocent, was the fact that he did not protest the fact that he was under arrest. He seemed scared, but he did not cry out that he was innocent. He did not demand that she secure his release. He tried to assure her that everything was going fine and that there was nothing wrong but that he needed a lawyer for sure. So Oswald's demeanor indicted him as well. As for the suggestion or statement by Oswald that he was a patsy, the word patsy can mean many things. Conspiracists argue that it can mean only one thing, that he was a patsy for some elaborate conspiracy. But a patsy can also mean somebody wrongfully accused of a crime, with no conspiracy implied at all. A patsy is someone that the police pick up when they are incompetent to do their job and find the actual guilty party. It does not imply that there was a conspiracy in the mind of a person who uses the claim of patsy but simply that he's an innocent man wrongly accused of the crime because the police have no one else to accuse and they're too lazy to get the real killer. So that is likely what Oswald meant by Patsy because there's no evidence of a conspiracy and Oswald knew that at the time. Oswald did react in fury when James Hostie walked into the room. This was the first time that Oswald had laid eyes on the FBI agent who had talked to Ruth and Marina twice in November. Oswald was possibly outraged because Hostie was a symbol of the FBI, and the FBI probably, in Oswald's mind, was responsible for the mess that he was in on November 22nd. According to my theory, Oswald believed that the FBI was just a few steps behind him on his trail, and was about to arrest him anyway, in part for claiming to want to blow up the FBI headquarters, the note that he had left on November 10th. So Oswald committed the assassination because he believed he had no other options left, and he was running out of time. So when he laid eyes on Hostie in the afternoon of November 22nd, by that time he may have had second thoughts about what he had done. Especially the killing of Tippett was not part of his plan, and it really ruined his effort to stand on Communist ideology as the change agent he hoped to be, because he was also now going to be known, rightly, as a cop killer. So Oswald probably blamed the FBI, since he hardly ever blamed himself, for the situation he was in. He didn't, of course, lay that all out in his statement to Hostie, but he reacted as furiously as he reacted to anything in the 48 hours between the death of JFK and the death of Oswald on the morning of November 24th he lambasted hosty for harassing his wife and hosty had to calm him down as best he could so it does seem to be consistent with the idea that oswald's cover had been blown by oswald himself on november 10th and the critical ingredient that oswald had let slip on november 10th was that he was capable of violence Remember that the FBI did not know that Oswald had a rifle until the assassination. The rifle had slipped through the FBI's view because Oswald had had the good sense to purchase a post office box and purchase both the pistol and the rifle in a pseudonym's name, which got by the FBI plant who was supposed to be tracing Oswald's mail. The FBI plant did not notice that in the mail Oswald received a pistol and a rifle because it was in the name of someone else, namely Alec Heidel. All the other mail that Oswald got, including the militant and the worker, was communicated to the FBI by the Dallas plant that the FBI had that was tracing Oswald's mail. But as late as November 1st, 1963, the FBI did not know that Oswald had a pistol and a rifle. Had they known that, they might have connected him to the Walker shooting. But because they thought that Oswald was just some kind of communist reader and writer and did not seem to be violent in temperament until November the 10th, they did not pursue Oswald in a connection with the Walker shooting. But here's the thing. After November 10th, incredibly enough, the FBI still did not connect Oswald to Walker, even though they now knew or should have known that the man who left the note was Oswald and that Oswald was now clearly capable of violence. At that point, since Hostie also knew that Oswald was an employee of the Texas School Book Depository, which was in downtown Dallas, and possibly Hosty did not, did not know exactly where the building was in downtown Dallas. Nevertheless, Hostie should have reported to the Secret Service that a case filed that the FBI had was potentially violent. Someone who worked downtown in the city that JFK was going to reconnoiter in a motorcade. Hostie was derelict in his duty in not doing that. It was a scandalous dereliction and it would have attracted J. Edgar Hoover's rage if he had ever found out about it. Of course, Hoover was in his grave when Hostie revealed the evidence of the note later. The point being, though, that Oswald knew that the FBI knew he was now violent. It was likely that Oswald assumed, quite logically, even though he had no reason to fear, as it turned out, it was quite logical for Oswald to think that the FBI would make the clear connection between a violent communist like Oswald and either the Walker shooting or the potential for violence against JFK in the days coming up, or both. And so Oswald must have spent the next 12 days in fear that the FBI would catch up with him at any time, and he tried to maintain his pseudonym of O.H. Lee in his boarding house as a way to keep the FBI and others off his track. But when Marina and Ruth called him, it was clear that they had the number, and if the FBI returned to Ruth's house, his cover at the boarding house might be blown just a few days before JFK came to town. So this was strengthening Oswald's resolve, in all likelihood, to shoot JFK, because at any moment, at any day, the FBI might put a stop to all his plans for the future peaceful as well as violent and so this strengthens the idea that oswald was being pushed in his own mind to assassinate jfk by the sense that time was running out so oswald in october and november 1963 was a man under pressure with all his options running out, pursued by the FBI, at least in his mind, and incapable of organizing his life in such a way as to turn things around. Oswald was also incapable of working with others if one follows this line of argument from beginning to end. In order to demonstrate this conclusively, We will have an ancillary episode to this series on Lee Harvey Oswald, an episode that looks at the Sylvia Odio affair, the alleged involvement by Oswald in an anti-Castro group that appeared at the door of a young woman named Sylvia Odio in Dallas in late September or early October. This is a controversy we will look at in detail. To try to comprehensively explain how this episode, far from being an outlier and a contrast to the Oswald we've met in these episodes, is one more confirmation that Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone assassinated President John F. Kennedy. This is your host Rick Ryman. Happy listening. That's it for today's episode of audiblyspeaking.com. New podcast episodes appear on audiblyspeaking.com approximately once every two weeks. Please subscribe to Audibly Speaking on iTunes or whatever podcast aggregator you enjoy. Until next time, this is Rick Ryman. Happy listening.